Dear Dawn, well, the moment we've been waiting for. The warrants have been signed. It's set for October 9th at 9.30 a.m. And now are you about to have a heart attack? Well, don't. Remember, I've been waiting for this for so long and fought for it and am glad that it's finally arrived. So if you would, with me, be glad that it's finally here. I was so fucked over. I'll be way better off. And so it's time to fly. And you've got till October 9th to get yourself ready for it. Okay? Now, do I sound hard going? Well, sorry, babe. But I'm going to be a man leaving. Not some broken down mess they were hoping for. And so Rocky's ready. And I hope you get just as thought and keep it together. Okay? And since I've got to hurry and get this out of you quick, then I'm going to have to make it short. But then I'm going to set back down and do a real wrapper of one for you. Okie dokie. Court's over. Everything's over. So now I can, sweetheart, and will. So until the, then, count to ten and try to stay cool, okay? For now, love, Aileen. Dear Don, by now surely you received quite kite on the warrant signed and do hope you got it in time. And so, it's happening. Get it all out of you now, and then let's show them class and brass, babe, okay? I'll be okay, and I'm sure hope you'll be as well. And so, here comes the Enterprise to pick me up. And on my way I go, away from all the corruption they ran over my ass, and cases. As for the last meal, having any intentions of eating anything, I'll just be asking for a glass of water. And if they'll give it to me to eat, send on a plate. And they can send that all over the world, that it was the last thing I ate. Now get the message, dumbasses. Then as far as in the chamber and having anything to say before I go, will just be goodbye to you. And that's it. As Jesus' last words and thoughts were, it's finished. So be it. It will be too with this fin. And then to think if I'm right about Star Trek and theory and all the what-ifs to second chances on the fallen angels, etc. Sure wish I could send you a kite and let you know, sweetheart. Anyway, as I leave, I do hope Lion's Gear Settlement winds up taking care of you guys, but good. I'll always be wishing you the best on. Then, if you would, please let the rest of my family know that I'll be wishing them the best in rearing them kids up. May the good Lord bless them all, turning everything out for the future of the good. Anyway, I'm sorry to hear your mom's hurting so much and can only wish her the best in death to the Lord. And if you would, please tell her once more why I couldn't write. There was just too much going on with the wave-offs and then court. So I'm really sorry. And with that, I'll wrap her up here full of hugs, sis. Thank you for everything you ever done for me 
will love you forever for sticking with the way you did. And so until the next one, I'll see you then. Take good care. And I hope you always keep your head together. Okay? Love, Aileen. P.S. Another book title, The Last Breath. Welcome to the True Crime Librarian. I'm your librarian and host, Ashley. The week before last, we were making our way through the victim list. Peter Sims was murdered sometime in the June of 1990. His body has yet to be found, and even with Aileen's assistance following her arrest, the police were never able to nail down just where it was that Peter and Aileen pulled off into to get away from prying eyes. Peter could have never taken Aileen up on her offer for sex and money, and I fear that she would have killed him anyways. By this point, she knew the moment she slid into a car of which every man stopped for her, she would be taking their lives with her when she left. She no longer had to lay down and wait for men to finish their business to get her money. No, now she just needed them to think. That's what she was going to do, and once she had them in her deserted location, she would raise and fire that 22. Many questions fly in this case, but only a few end up answered. Warning, this episode contains graphic detail of murder, sexual assault, and strong adult language. Listener's discretion is advised. If any of this may be too much for you, please skip this episode or have someone listen with you or for you. Good evening, my true crime nerds. I want to thank you all for all the understanding last week when I had family in town. Um, they were there. They were here to see my youngest play softball. So I was real thankful to be able to have a moment and take that time to spend with them. I only have a little bit of housekeeping to get to tonight. So we're going to go through this real quick. Let's show some true crime nerd love to Miss Michelle Romine. She joined the True Crime Nerd Club over on Patreon, and I want to thank you so much for your support. Remember, you can always support the show by joining Patreon or by heading over to the website, taking a look around, and hitting that one-time donation button. Or you can always support the show for free by recommending, reviewing, liking, and sharing TTCL with all of the other True Crime Nerds in your life. Enough of all of this. Let's get what you all came here for and waited patiently for the true crime.
So, like I said in the intro to this week's episode, last episode we were going over the timeline of David Spears, Charles Cacodon, and Peter Sims's murders, and how you could see the evolution of Aileen going from Richard Mallory's murder into Sims. She evolved far more quickly than anticipated, and soon she was no longer laying down. Now she was killing him in the beginning of their torrid tryst in the woods, and these men, they were out for one thing from Lee, but she was out for another. What makes Aileen's case so bizarre and why she was free to keep killing the way she did was because she wasn't murdering them in the same county. So we have, at this point, three different counties looking for whoever is responsible for the dead body that showed up within their jurisdiction. Aileen's prints were in the state of Florida's database because she had served time in prison in the early 80s. But the national database that we all know of wasn't there just yet. And any digital process that began in the early 90s, it didn't happen as instantaneously as it does now. So let me introduce you to Troy Eugene Burris. She, he is victim number five. Troy was born January 29th, 1940 in Savannah, Tennessee to John and Clara Burris. He was the youngest of three children. Troy had formerly owned a pool cleaning company called Troy's Pools in Boca Raton on the southeast coast of West Palm Beach in Fort Lauderdale. Eventually, the company went belly up and Troy and his wife moved to Ocala so that Troy could work part-time for Gilchrist Sausage Company. On Monday, July 30th, 1990, Troy left for his assigned route known as the Daytona route. This would take him to several different customers throughout the Central Florida area. His last stop that day was part of an extensive Indian reservation in Salt Springs, an area very close to where David Spears' truck was found and close to where Lee and Tyria crash Sims Sunbird. When it was reported that Troy didn't make that last drop in Salt Springs, his employers began calling the customers on the route. They found out that after he made his drop in DeVille along State Road 17, Troy vanished. Troy was reported missing by his wife when he didn't come home late in the night of July 30th into the early hours of July 31st. Come 2 a.m. that morning of July 31st, Troy's wife was just, she had the notion something was wrong. And so she filed the missing persons report at that point. She described him as slightly built male, 50 years of age, blonde hair, blue eyes, weighing about 155 pounds and standing roughly five foot six inches tall. It would be around 4 a.m. July 31st that deputies would stumble on his truck on State Road 19, about 20 miles east of Ocala. On August 4th, 1990, Troy's decomposing body was found in some dense wooded area in Marion County off of Highway 19 by a family who were just there out to enjoy the nice day and have a picnic. This was about eight miles from where they found his truck abandoned. 
Due to the heavy humidity levels in Florida, decomposition is sped up and it's almost sped up rapidly. So it was very hard to even identify the body as it lay at the scene. Autopsy would later reveal the identity for Troy and also showed us that he was shot twice with a 22 caliber handgun, once to the chest and once to the back. Both were well-placed and fatal injuries. When investigator John Tilly began processing the scene and putting together what had happened, he suspected Curtis Michael Blinkenship. Blinkenship had been hitchhiking on Highway 19 on the day that Burris went missing, and he was also picked up relatively close to where Burris's truck was recovered from. A drifter who had killed for one reason or another when in reality, it was a serial killer they had on the loose and police were fighting a bigger battle without even knowing it. And that is jurisdiction. The fact that not all of these victims were killed within Marion County, Belusa, Citrus, and Pasco were in the same spot as Tilly. They had a dead body and they didn't have a suspect. Aileen would later say this about Troy, quote, he physically attacked me and he was, he laughed. He, he pulled out a $10 bill and said, this is all you fucking deserve, you fucking whore. Like that. And I said, wait. And then he just threw the fucking money down and I was standing in front of the truck here and he had the door open and he just came, didn't know I had a gun or anything. He came at me and we were fighting and um, when I got away from him, I ran back to the truck and I had a, my gun in, in the back and I ran in the back real quick and he now, we're still fighting and somehow he, I kicked him or something. He backed away and I pulled the gun out and I said, you bastard. And I think I shot him right in the stomach or something. End quote. Lee accused Troy of sexually assaulting her and so she shot him in the chest or the stomach and then when he turned to run, she shot him again because she mistakenly thought that because he had sexually assault, assaulted her, she had the right to shoot him regardless of whether he was coming at her or fleeing from her. Self-defense only stands when you're actively fearing for your life. The minute a person turns and runs away from you in order to flee, you are now taking on more than just being a person fighting self-defense. Now, you are possibly becoming a killer yourself. You have all the right in the world to protect yourself. Um, but in order to intelligently do that, you need to know these laws. Well, we didn't know this. She thought because he had hurt her, regardless of which direction he was facing, she was going to shoot him. Well, that doesn't work like that. And so this situation went from self-defense to cold-blooded murder if it happened in the way that Lee accused or recounted that it happened. Let me introduce you to victim number six. His name is Charles Richard Humphreys. Charles, or Dick as he was known to those around him, was born December 15, 1933, and he was just 56 years old at the time of his murder. He was an ex-police chief in Alabama turned investigator specializing in protecting abused and injured children. 
At the time of his murder, he was about to be transferred to the department in Ocala. He himself was living in Crystal River. All of this is in with Lee's hunting territory. Dick was a great guy who advocated for kids. He and his wife raised three children, and in the recent years, Dick's wife, Shirley, had been diagnosed and was battling cancer. On September 11th, 1990, 10 minutes after 6, that evening, Shirley knew something was off. Dick usually pulled into her driveway 10 minutes after 6 every single night. So at 6.30, Shirley thought, well, maybe he's having some car trouble. 7 p.m. rolls around, and now she's thinking, well, maybe he had a stressful day, and he's stopping for a beer or two. Come 8 o'clock, she knew at that point it was far worse than just a few beers or some car trouble. And she contacted the Florida State Highway Patrol and reported him missing. The Wildwood Police Department began to search for Dick, and on September 13th, around 2.30 in the morning, there was a knock at the door of the Humphreys' home, and Shirley knew it didn't bring good news, and she was right. On Tuesday, September 11th, 1990, Dick disappeared after picking up a hitchhiker or even possibly a couple of hitchhikers. The next day, Dick's body was found on County Road 484, not too far from both where Spears and Karskadon's vehicles were found. Dick took seven shots. Six 22 caliber bullets were recovered from his body. The seventh passed through his wrist. It was through and through, and a casing had never been found. Money and wallet were missing. His pockets were turned inside out. And of course, his vehicle is missing. On September 19th, Dick's blue four-door Forenza car was found 70 miles north of his home. It was abandoned at a service station at the intersection of I-10 and State Route 90, 15 miles south the Georgia-Florida state line. Nothing seemed too out of place at first. The plates were missing and identifying markers had been removed from the vehicle. And this meant like stickers or bumper stickers or emblems, not original to the car. She would take these things off. What was left behind inside of the car, though, is a Budweiser can. This was never looked at any further. They documented that a Budweiser can was found under the passenger seat of the vehicle, but it was never taken in. It was never processed for prints. Nothing ever came from it. And it should have, because now we know, hindsight's 2020, that Budweiser was one of Lee's more, more favored brands of beer. So, you know, Going back, we're like, eh, there was a clue, and if it, you could have been on top of this long before anybody else had to die. The story goes like this. Dick stopped and picked up Lee and another woman. Many people have speculated that Tyria was the other woman with Lee, and I can't help but ask the question, was Ty with Lee when Lee crossed Dick's path? And if she was, she was or is just as guilty as Lee in this case. Many are going to hate me for saying this, but Tyria was blindly in love with Lee and she lived 
glamorously in bliss, taking the money that Lee brought home day in and day out without question. She knew Lee was a sex worker. She knew early on that Lee was a sex worker. And her original opinion was it was exciting. It's kind of neat to hear about Lee meeting all these different people. But now she should see that there has been a change in Lee in the way these kind of work out and what she's coming home with. And now she just has the money to, you know, be giving tie all these gifts, what have you. It should have ring like a neon red flashing sign that said red flag because we're having one. Lee could never give Ty definitively an answer as to where all of this crap came from. And Tyria crashed Sim's car, a car she didn't know where it came from, a car that she watched a very shaken up Lee rip the plates from and lie about who they were to the people who witnessed Ty crashing the car, saying, we're not the women from the car. She could have not been that blind and just ignored something like this so major, but she claims she did and there's never been any evidence to prove otherwise. But I'm still going to ask the question, was Ty with Lee when she picked up Dick? It's never thoroughly said of whether the story ends with Dick sexually assaulting Lee or what happened because the focus was on whether or not it was one or two hitchhikers, which brings up the question, you know, was it Ty? Then we completely get lost, but the story goes that he picked up these two women and they accosted him maybe for trading sex for money. It sounds like he agreed. Um, and the reason I say this is because it, Lee never really stopped being a sex worker per se. I mean, she was still killing, but she was still pulling tricks as well. So not every man triggered that inside of her. Uh, just those who gave her the vibe that they were out to take something from her. And that's why these men had to die. And then, you know, going to a secluded area freaks her out. She can't stand to not have people around. So all of that triggers that whole, I'm going to kill them kind of thing. That's what I, I think. I really do. I think once you put her in a, in a position where she was secluded, Aileen's fight or flight just took off like crazy. And in turn, she started killing people for it. Okay, so there was a lot of heavy debate within me and me about whether or not I was going to include this into this, this series coverage. But the longer I sit here and I look at it, the more I'm convinced I'm going to tell you about it. So let me tell you about this encounter. And we are calling this the one who got away because there is a name provided, but it's not one that I think is relevant or a must know. So let's just go from there. On November, in November of 1990, a truck driver 
was driving his car from his home to Orlando along I-4 to pay an insurance bill of some sort. While he was stopped at a truck stop near Haines City, 24 miles southwest of Orlando, Lee approaches him and asks for a ride. She said that she needed to get to Daytona Beach, and she was kind of in a time crunch because she needed to pick her two kids up from daycare. But if she could ride with him for the rest of the way towards Orlando, then she could get her sister to pick her up and take her the rest of the way. She played on the My Poor Bleeding Heart, and the driver agreed. With Lee in the car, the driver drove to the bank where he withdrew a large amount of money, somewhere in the neighborhood of about four grand, which he tucked from the envelope into the visor above his head. Lee witnessing this, she decides that money's mine. So after a few minutes, she propositions him. She's like, you know, if you give me a hundred bucks, I'll give you the best blowjob you've ever had in your life. Thankfully, this man was very committed to his marriage and to his wife, and he turned Lee down. But Lee knew how much money was in that envelope, so she was not going to take no for an answer. And she pressured him and insisted that she would be taking care of him. All he had to do was park somewhere along the Orange Grove. The driver again said, no, mm -mm, we're not doing this. So Lee goes in for a third time. And as she's, you know, trying to convince him how good she is, she's taking a comb out of her purse and he is paying attention and he catches a glimpse of her very small caliber handgun. And from that point on, he was on a mission to get her out of his car. In the presence of people and at a truck stop, if could be. Once they stop at another truck stop, the driver, you know, tells Lee, you know, I'm sorry, this is as far as I can take you. And he gets her to get out of the car and he agrees, I'm going to give you $5 to call your sister. So she gets out of the car. Well, the, the minute she is clear, he closes the door and he locks it. The driver would later testify against Lee and claim that she became super agitated once he got her out of the car. And when he was leaving, she yelled at him, quote, I'll get you, you son of a bitch. I'll kill you like I did the other old fat sons of bitches, end quote. Thankfully, this man escaped with his life, but he put Lee in the path of her final victim, Walter Gino Antonio. Walter... <clears throat> Walter Gino Antonio was born November 22nd, 1928, and he was just shy of his 62nd birthday when he ran into Aileen. Walter was a trucker who was also a security guard part-time and also a reserve police officer for Brevard County. On November 17th, possibly the very same day that the one man who escaped death's grasp Walter was on his way to Alabama in search for another job, something that would provide better for him and his new fiance, Aileen Berry. Walter more or less was traveling the same route as Peter Sims. He was using the Florida Turnpike before he got off at I-75 
using the truck stop there where Lee had been dumped off before continuing north. On Sunday, November 18th, a police officer gone, that was out hunting game found a man's body. The body was, for all intents and purposes, nude except for a pair of socks. Walter had been shot four times, three to his torso and one to the head with a 22 caliber pistol. Lee drove Walter's maroon Pontiac Grand Prix to Fairview Motel where she had been staying at and asked the manager there if it was okay to park her boyfriend's car out back because she found out mm, he's married and she doesn't need his wife driving by spotting the car. The manager went ahead and agreed with Lee and Lee held true to her deal. After a couple days, the car was gone. Thanksgiving came and went in 1990 before Tyria came back to Florida and back to Lee. Well, for Lee, in order to prove to Ty how much she loved her, she gave her a beautiful yellow white gold ring with a diamond and a sea of white gold behind that. It was the size 10 and 3 quarters. It was also the very same ring that Aileen Berry had given her fiancé, Walter. On November 24th, in a wooded area close to I-19 in U.S. 1 North in Brevard County, 20 miles south from where Walter started his journey, and definitely in the wrong direction, they find his car. The license plate and the keys are missing. She removed a bumper sticker. Again, this is trademark Lee. And Walter just happened to be very good at keeping records of his gas, his money, and how many miles he was traveling. So it was a so the police were able to determine that an unknown driver took his car after killing him and drove over a thousand plus miles in it. According to Lee, she was on the lookout for a customer when Walter pulled up. She asked him if he wanted to help her make some money. That would be about the time that Walter pulled out his police badge and told her something along the lines of, I'm not paying for sex and I can arrest you for even asking the question. So if you don't want to get arrested, then you are going to give to me for free. Well, Lee was like, I'm not giving anything away from free for free. You're going to pay. And if the conversation went as what Lee recalls in this fan, you know, I'm a police officer. You're not, you know, I'm not paying for shit. Then you can see the anger rise within Lee and trigger that PTSD. I'm going to guarantee that's the way it went. Hell no. Um, as much as I've enjoyed getting to know Lee and getting to know this case because I, I thought I knew it, but, um, yeah, once I get done researching it, I realized I didn't know half of it. So I don't believe everything that comes out of Lee's mouth. I don't believe everything she wrote down. I don't believe a lot of it. I want to believe that she was a victim of sexual assault. I want to believe that that triggered PTSD for her. And in her mind, it gave her a good enough excuse to do what she was doing. Um, 
but no matter how you slice this, this is murder. This is serial murder. And it's aptly naming her a serial killer because that's what she's doing. She's trying to justify it and trying to say that self-defense is, is the only reason she did it. But with some of them towards the end, it wasn't about self-defense, I don't think. Um, I think it was the comfort of not having to have sex with multiple men and still be able to take some money home and show Ty that she's attempting to try and take care of her. Lee says, quote, at first, I, uh, because that one guy, that HRS guy telling me he was a cop, I said to myself, that guy was HRS guy. So this is another faker. He's just trying to get a piece of free ass. And that's all I thought. And yeah, it pissed me off. Well, when we were struggling with the gun and everything else again, he fell to the ground and he started to run back, run away. And I shot him in the back, right in the back. He just kind of looked at me for a second and he said, he said something like, um, shit, what did he say? Uh, I think he said, you cunt or something like that. And I said, you bastard. And I shot him again, end quote. Walter Antonio would be Aileen's last victim because come time that she's, um, killed Walter, the police in all these different counties in Florida have kind of figured out that they all have something in common. And come mid-December 1990, Captain Steve Byinger had used the newspapers to publish his plea to the public. If anyone knows anything about these two women who were sketched out based off the eyewitness at the scene of the crash where Peterson's car was found. It's a blonde hair woman with this with scraggly kind of hair and a manly woman with a round face, short, dark hairstyle. Well, one of the men out in Homosas recalls two women that fit the description of these composite sketches. And he says that they are a woman named Tyria and Susan Blahovic, two women that had rented an RV from him no more than a year prior. This helps police tie Lee to the Susan Blachowicz alias, causing the interaction with her and the police officers um, to look when she had been stopped as Susan Blachowicz and the officer labeled her as someone with a poor attitude. Things are piecing together slowly. Then they get a call from a lady out in Ocala who IDs them as two women that used to work for her at the motel she managed. And that was Tyria and Aileen. Then on December 3rd, Lee calls a friend to meet her at the motel that she and Ty are staying at. They need to pack up their belongings. They were getting evicted. And when the friend asks, you know, where are we going to take this stuff? Lee says, it's going to storage. Lee and Ty were going to split up and Ty was going to go back home up north. So Lee and her friend take their stuff to the storage unit and she rents it under the name of Cammie Green. Again, tying herself to another alias on the ever-growing list. Then Lee and her friend head back to his place and the two end up having sex with one another. Then on December 7th, something even better 
comes up. At 12.30 p.m., Lee goes into a pawn shop, and the ring that she had taken from Walter and tried to give to Ty to say how much she loved her, she sold it. Lee, or should I say Cammie Green, only got $20, not even enough to go hang your hat up on. But the thing that makes this worthy is at the time, you were required to leave your fingerprint behind whenever you pawned or stole, well, whether you pawned or sold an item to the shop. Because if it was stolen then they have records to go back on and say, well, they use this name, but this is their fingerprints and yada, yada, yada. You get the, you get the gist. So you've got a fingerprint and they find this ring and now we've got a lead. It wasn't Cammie's fingerprint that was left behind. It was Lee's fingerprint left behind. And again, we're tying her to these aliases and there's a bunch of tiny red flags starting to go up. Um, hindsight's 2020, but coming, you know, we can talk about this happening within five, 10 minutes. It takes far longer than that five or 10 minutes for things to start to line up on this level. You've got Aileen, the same face with different names for different occurrences. We've got storage units in one name. We've got pawn shops items in another. We know her as Aileen. You know, now they're starting to connect everything. Lee was so sure that by her using an alias and not ever really, not steadily repeating that alias, she thought she could lead police down the wrong road long enough for her to catch on that they were onto her and get the hell out of there. One step of a, ahead of the police of sorts, if you will. But what she doesn't realize is eventually people talk and your face doesn't change. And now it's being tied with all these other encounters by these people with different names and now you're leaving big, giant breadcrumbs behind, giving police exactly your location. So she thought she was being smart, but in hindsight, because we're looking back at it, you weren't very smart. You were just, you just chose a different way to lead them to you. This fingerprint and pawn shop stuff becomes one of the major breaks in this case for investigators. You've got dead man's jewelry popping up in a palm shop where they have now an alias and her fingerprints. And of course, they're learning that Susan Blahovic and Cami Green are one in the same, and it may just very well be the same person they know as Lee. And everybody keeps reporting Lee and Ty, you know, matching these sketches. You can't ignore all that coming together. A little more looking and they find that at another pawn shop, Cami sold a Minolta Freedom Camera and a Micronta Road Patrol Radar. Both of these belong to Richard Mallory. Then in Ormond, at another pawn shop, Cami sold some tools that matched the description of the missing tools of David Spears. These tools were never recovered by police. 
All of this is coming in, giving investigators exactly what they need to arrest Lee for the murder of multiple men in central and northern Florida. With the fingerprints coming off these pawn tickets, police began running them through the local records. It wasn't until they took them to the National Crime Information Center and they struck gold because the prints are matching a suspect with a weapons charge and an outstanding warrant by the name of Lori Grody. These prints also match the bloody ones left behind in Peterson's car. Eventually, we have Michigan, Colorado, and Florida confirming that these prints are one and the same in the databases. Laura Grody, Susan Blahovic, Cami Green, they were all alias for one woman, Aileen Warnos. With Ty being gone, Lee was left to do what she did best, sleeping where she can, working what she can. She's not making as much money. At this point, Aileen's like 33 years old. And with her heaven, heavy drinking, she doesn't look it. She's aged progressively and rapidly. So she's not a prime age to keep making the most money being a sex worker. It was looking like Aileen had hit rock bottom. However, rock bottom was far deeper and way more scarier for her. Authorities from six different counties had come together and they laid out this sting operation on how to arrest Aileen. And on January 8th of 1991, the woman who had murdered seven different men in these counties, she was going to be the someone to pay for the lives that had been taken from this world. And it was a woman who was meaner than a rattlesnake with a mouth that could make a sailor blush. Two men went into Orange Pub on Ridgewood Avenue in Daytona the night of January 8th, Mike Joyner and Dick Martin. They were dressed and acted like two leather-clad bikers. In reality, they were both undercover detectives working for the operation to take Lee down. They were just a mile, half mile from her more favorite bar, The Last Resort. But it didn't matter to Lee where she was. She was drinking. Rock bottom was dark and nasty. And the police had not come for her that night. She would have lived at rock bottom until she either pulled her stunt on the wrong man and she ended up being murdered by somebody else or until the booze eventually took her. While in Orange Pub, two police officers who were uninformed of this thing going on walk in and bring Lee outside so they can talk to her. Well, those who are part of the sting operation, they're freaking out. They start making phone calls, demanding somebody gets these two officers to get the hell out of there. They're not arresting Lee. They need to walk away. Eventually, the orders trickled down and Lee's free to return to the pub. The operation was set up in a way that allowed detectives to get to know her and learn as much as they can about what she knows without them realizing she's talking to an officer. But then they learn that on the evening of January 9th, there's a party to go down, and there's going to be a shit ton of bikers there, and it would give Lee the perfect diversion if and when she figures out who 
you know, these men that she's been talking to are. Over at the last resort, they lay out a plan for her to get her out of the bar. So she's over there at last resort with these two guys that she had met at the Orange Pub. And they're drinking midday. And the undercover detectives offer Lee, you know, hey, come back to our motel. You can go there. You can get cleaned up. And we'll come back in time for the party tonight. At first, Lee's very hesitant. But then she thinks, you know, why not? Haven't had a great shower. And if I have to lay down, well, we'll see how that goes kind of thing. And Lee agrees. Lee steps outside of the bar and walks up. Lee is under the arrest on the notion that Lori Grody, one of her aliases, has an outstanding warrant for an illegal firearm. Still, they don't tell her for sure just yet that she is under arrest actually for the murder of six men, all in an effort to take her down quickly and quietly. Doing it this way gives police a chance to control the narrative. And when the narrative comes out, they have final say. You know, this is what we're going to say and this is when we're going to say it. So once they have Lee, they release a press release that says they have arrested a suspect in a serial killer string of murders in central and northern Florida. And the woman, her name is Aileen Warnos. Once they have Aileen in their custody, they decide to attack her weakest point, and that's Tyria. She was picked up in Pennsylvania, where she had been staying with her sister after fleeing her parents' house, I believe, after hearing the news of Lee's arrest. Instead of taking her in for questioning, uh, Major Dan Henry of Marion County Sheriff's Department, he does something a little different. Instead of putting her in jail, they put her up in a motel. They're going to see if they can get her on their side. If they could, then it stood a great chance that they could convict Lee based off of that and the fact that maybe they could earn a confess confession out of her. So... Ty, you know, it takes some convincing, but a tie, she turns eventually. And she lets the police kind of go through her stuff that she's got with her, and they find things that belong to Dick Humphreys and to another possible victim, but it's never been proven. His name's Corky Reed. And I didn't choose to cover him because he is not a confirmed victim. However, my personal opinion, He's a victim of aliens. Inside that motel, Ty agreed to work with them without protection of um, promise not to prosecute. She didn't have protection of a plea bargain going on. She had nothing, and she agreed it was time to hit for the other team. Ty thought that maybe Lee had murdered Richard Mallory because she came home with his Cadillac. And, oh, there's this part. Lee confessed to her about killing a man that day and before Lee could get into any kind of conversation or any kind of details Ty shot back to her you know I don't want to hear it and it, this was either done as a way that if Lee got caught Ty could not you know testify against her 
or it could be that if Ty heard all those details, it was going to be very hard to live blissfully unaware, okay? So anytime Lee wanted to talk about anything that Ty perceived as possible, whatever, involving murders or anything, she was like, nope, don't want to talk about it. I'm not going to, you know, stick her finger in her ears, act like a toddler. Yet here she is working with the police saying, yeah, I kind of figured she killed Richard Mallory. I'm pretty sure there's some other people. I, I thought some of this stuff was coming from some of the victims. Well, I mean, what did she really have to say once they had her against a wall? She couldn't. She had to agree to work with them. She had to agree to tell them what she knew, all in an effort just to save her own ass. Well, in the end, they get Ty to go back to Florida and they set it up to where she will be able to call and talk with Lee and tell her kind of what's going on. So at this motel, Lee calls and Ty answers the phone and Lee's, you know, like, what are you doing in Florida? You know, how'd you get back so quickly? Ty's like, oh, I got to get my stuff. But now you're arrested. What's going on? What, you know, what's the deal? Police are talking to me and um, I don't like the direction this is going. They're saying that I killed some men and da, 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 da. Lee's on the other hand going, no, you didn't do anything. You didn't, you didn't have any, uh, you know, rhyme or reason to know what was going on. You know, don't worry about it. And Ty's like, no, now they're, you know, three days, 11 conversations get played out. And slowly Ty insinuates that she is going to go down for what Lee did. And she's pleading with Lee to say something so that all of this will go away. Um, and Lee eventually says, quote, I was sure she was, be or I was being taped. The way she was talking, I felt it. The way she was able to come back to Florida so quickly, and she's staying in a motel for $50 a night. Where'd she get $50 a night? But she kept crying. They're going to destroy me. I might as well kill myself. I need you to talk to the cops so they'll leave me alone. Sarah went and I told police that she had nothing to do with the crimes. But I also told them 37 times that it was in self-defense. On January 13, 1992, Aileen Warnos went on trial for the murder of Richard Mallory. 
she was handed a guilty verdict by the jury to which she responded to with, quote, sons of bitches, I was raped. I hope you get raped. Scumbags of America, end quote. This sent the nation into a tailspin of onslaughts in the months to come as Lee was set to appear for each of the men she killed, with the exception of Peter Sims. In all, Lee was handed six death sentences. She would go into the custody of Florida Department of Corrections until they pumped chemicals into her arm, effectively killing her. Throughout it all, Lee could make headlines with little to no effort, thanks to the fact that she didn't have a filter Whenever her mind said, her mouth formed the words. In the morning hours of October 9, 2002, Aileen was escorted to the death chamber where she was strapped to a gurney and an IV was started in her arm. She was asked if there were any last words she would like to say and she left the world with this. I'd just like to say I'm selling with the rock. And I'll be back like Independence Day with Jesus, June 6th. Like the movie, Big Mothership and all, I'll be back. Aileen Carol Warnos was pronounced dead at 9.47 a.m., making her the 10th woman to be executed in the United States since 1976 and the second woman to be executed in the state of Florida. I want to thank you all for joining me tonight on this closeout episode on Miss American Serial Killer, Aileen Warnos. It has been a wild, foul mouth ride these last few weeks, and we are quickly coming to the end of season four. Join me next week when I premiere the last case in the season four lineup. It's already here, the final series of TTCL. As always, I leave you with one last line, or in this case, one last letter. Dear Aileen, well there, my friend, I know you have reached the other side, the only place you ever wanted to be. You were home up in heaven, and I bet God was right there with you, with wide open arms waiting for you and that big smile of yours. And it's more than makes up for all the suffering you went through here on earth. And I bet it's far better, beautiful, and peaceful than you ever imagined it to be. I'm saying a big amen to you and a happy and at peace for you. Finally made. Liz and Daphne thought it would be interesting if I made the time to write you a letter. What would I write today? First thought, crazy idea, but... Also, more I thought about five minutes. I miss writing you more than I ever thought I could. Got my pad of paper and an ink pen and I could hardly put it down for four days straight. Must have used 50 pieces of paper. Crumbled them all up. None of it was good enough. Went back to death row and all the great million memories. Happy laughing. You were so funny thought filling my heart again couldn't keep up writing as fast as I was thinking I was filling up the spot only you have in my heart and soul and with our writing getting that feeling back great friendship but suddenly never thought I would feel this felt this would be completing my right to you if you're not here to write to I have no reason to write don't want to made me feel in a way the end of part of you and I. 
the writing. Got my first here and feeling, I guess, sad. I'm at a loss for words, and if I could find them to describe how proud and luck I was, you chose me to have as your friend till the end. You'll always be loved and remember and part of our family. I love you, Dawn. Much love, the true crime librarian.